The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, we sat down with Jamaica's finance minister, Nigel Clark. His country had a great 2018 with the world's best performing stock market of the year. And things are already off to a strong start this year. In January, Fitch upgraded Jamaica's debt to a B-plus rating with a stable fiscal outlook. We spoke with Minister Clark about the streak of success for Jamaica, its economy, and how they've been using reggae to communicate monetary policy. We began the conversation by asking him the secret to Jamaica's recent success. Jamaica has uh, had a you know, tremendous performance over the last several years uh, with a restoration of macroeconomic stability and a return to growth. We've had 16 consecutive quarters of economic growth and we have been engaging in a series of structural reforms, fiscal, monetary and other reforms to uh, restore the economy's health and the, the results uh, have been getting attention around the world. Yeah. And the stock market is responding as well. Um, The central bank is supporting education uh, of what's going on economically, tackling debt specifically. You mentioned reforms. What was interesting was there is a series of videos that was released on Twitter addressing inflation and monetary policy. Talk to us about how that came about. Well, Jamaica has for a very long time had a monetary regime that focused on the exchange rate as as a tool of monetary policy. We have been moving away from that gradually, from a managed float to a market-determined exchange rate, with an inflation target being the anchor of monetary policy. Uh, late last year, in a in a speech I gave, I I sent out a very light-hearted critique uh, to the central bank, saying that they're doing all of this but not communicating to the Jamaican people, who ultimately they are accountable to. Mm. We're, we're, we have legislation in Parliament to make the central bank independent. And did they respond to my critique? Uh, responded by originating a series of videos designed to bring the Jamaican people into the conversation, into this uh, big change that we're making, this policy change. We, are, we have legislation to make the central bank independent. So monetary policy, the implementation of it will be independent of the executive. And uh, moving towards an inflation targeting regime as a cornerstone of monetary policy. And it was very important uh, to communicate to the Jamaican people in the best way possible. And the, the fact is that in Jamaica, whether you're communicating about uh, a glass of, uh, of, of juice or beer, or you're communicating complex monetary policy, music helps to, uh, to let it, music helps the communication effort. And uh, they wouldn't have expected the video to had received as much attention as it did, but very happy that the message uh, is getting across to the Jamaican people. Did it go viral? 
Did it go viral, the videos? The video, yes. From, uh, yes, the video went viral, absolutely. Measured by the number of times it was shared and the number, number of times it was viewed. It went viral and it was seen all over the world. I yeah. believe the central bank got comments from uh, monetary policymakers in other countries. There it is. Uh, recommending... Well, we can't listen in, but we can certainly watch it. <laughs> there we go. There's the music. Exactly. Just showing how reggae can be a form of communication. I'm interested in the communication of how you no, talk about growth going forward. Because at the moment, we're seeing what I saw Fitch saying, like you're going to get about 2% growth going for the next couple of years. But the Prime Minister's focus is for 4%. How is that to be achieved? Why is it not yet achieved? Yeah. So Jamaica you know, is emerging from a period of high debt, and low growth over a long period of time. Our debt, our growth over 40 years was about 0.9%. Over the last 10 years, it was about 0.2%. Over the last five years, about 0.5%. We are now seeing growth at a level of, of 2%, and we've had 16 consecutive quarters of economic growth, the longest such stretch of quarterly growth since we started measuring growth quarterly in 1997. We, as you have quoted the Prime Minister, you know, we want to elevate levels of growth. And so what we are investing in infrastructure mm -hmm. to allow us to improve the productivity uh, of business. We are investing in uh, training to improve the productivity of labor. And we are reforming our tax system, uh, bringing forth greater economic efficiency by getting rid of distortionary taxes, taxes that distort the allocation of capital in the economy. Then we caught up with Rashir Sharma, the Chief Global Strategist and Head of Emerging Markets at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, about what he called the lost decade for EM. We began by asking him if we'd already seen the worst in China. This has been a completely lost decade for emerging markets. If you look at the total return for emerging markets this decade, in dollar terms, it's zero, right? And the US stock market has tripled in value. So this is really a massive role reversal in terms of what happened last decade. Last decade, if you remember, the S&P did nothing in the, the entire decade, and emerging markets sort of doubled or tripled in value. So I think that the big sort of story here is that there's a lot of capital in the world which is being misallocated today mm. because the emerging markets have done very poorly, and all the money has come to the U.S. As a result today, look at this. The U.S. economy is 25% of the global economy. But the U.S. market is 55% of the global market cap. Emerging markets, the opposite. The emerging markets today are about 37, 38% of the global economy. And as a share of market cap, just 11, 12. So that's a missed opportunity. Yeah, so I think that uh, this has always been the case that emerging markets have been underrepresented, but this is a record low underrepresentation. So my feeling is that in the coming decade, we could once again see a role reversal, which is that emerging markets outperform. And you get sort of the U.S. which sort of treads water because of your opening statement, as you said, that emerging markets are not that expensive as the U.S. Mm. looks very richly valued. What we've seen over the last five years, perhaps longer than that, over the past, uh, well, since 05, 09, is a resolute trip higher of the, blue, of the dollar. Yes. And how, therefore, when we still got the dollar relatively high compared to this time last year, can the emerging markets tempt dollars to leave the U.S. and come over there? Does everyone have to get into local-based currencies, local-based assets, therefore? How do you play this? No, this is like a great point, because the reason the U.S. has done so well this decade is because the dollar has been very strong, mm. and that typically helps the U.S., especially as far as relative performance is concerned. My point is that just like, as you said, 
that the U.S. stock market is richly valued, so is the U.S. dollar. Now, the U.S. dollar at the beginning of this decade was really cheap. Today, the U.S. dollar is really expensive compared to most currencies in the world. So this is very much a weak dollar argument as well. Mm. But these things are so hard to see when the momentum is sort of running one way, which is the case currently. But when the momentum turns, these tend to be long cycles. So if you look at the dollar, in the post-Bretton Woods history, which is basically since the early 1970s when we moved to a freely floating exchange rate mechanism, the dollar has basically remained in a range and followed up and down cycles of about five to eight years in duration. So my point is that this dollar bull market now is pretty long in the tooth. It's quite Mm -hmm. mature. We've had this five to eight year bull run in the U.S. dollar. And in the next five to eight years, I expect to see a weaker, not a stronger dollar. So very much fitting in with the argument as to why you need to think about allocating much more internationally just now when people have sort of given up on it. All right. So we're looking for a momentum shift to bring back the decade of emerging markets. To what extent are the trajectories of China, of all of EM, really dependent on some kind of trade deal or some kind of concrete um, resolution to the trade tensions between U.S. and China? I think that is now sort of in the price that people are expecting some sort of a resolution. But I don't think that is going to be the enduring story, which because hmm. um, one of the big themes which we have spoken about in the past as well, which I still believe in, is that we are still in a world of deglobalization, which is that these trade wars, the rise of national identities, rise of nationalism, whatever you want to call it, I think that these trends tend to be very long term in nature. These are not just sort of, you know, Uh, short-term trend. So the market is very focused on what's going to happen just now, you know, with the trade deal. But I think that the long-term picture is still one of deglobalization. So yes, that is a bit of a headwind for the global economy as such. But I think it's back to what's in the price. I think that a lot of optimism in the short-term trade deal is in the price. Mm -hmm. Uh, But beyond that, I think even markets know this, that this era of deglobalization is here to last for many years. I've heard theories that if deglobalization is the trend, then the countries really to win out from an emerging markets perspective are actually Turkey and Brazil, very sustainable in and on themselves, don't base themselves so much on trade, whereas China is incredibly exposed to trade and perhaps hasn't got so much sustainability in terms of what it makes and produces in and of itself. Where does one bet on emerging markets if the theme is deglobalization? Yeah, so very true. So I think that Within emerging markets as such, if you look at it, I think that ex-China is much more interesting because Mm. whatever returns have come in emerging markets over the last few years have been very concentrated in China, in MSCI China in particular, because it's dominated by these large cap tech companies, which have produced these extraordinary returns, pretty much like in the US. But in emerging markets, the gap is even wider. So the beneficiaries are also economies which will benefit as China vacates some of it's, you know, the global market share in its exports. So Vietnam's doing really well. Mm. Uh, I think Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia. And this one surprise winner we don't speak about enough in this context could be Mexico. Huh. You know that, uh, so when I started sort of doing this 20 years ago, at that point in time, China was just about arriving on the global scene. Right. And Mexico was, you know, like uh, at that point in time, a very hyped up emerging market. Mm. But the wages in Mexico and the currency in Mexico were all very high relative to China. 20 years later, you fast forward today, wages in Mexico are lower than Chinese wages and the Chinese currency is much more expensive than the Mexican peso. So I think that ex-China, it's these economies which could benefit in an era of deglobalization and China is possibly one of the biggest losers of this era of deglobalization. 
In addition to his work at Morgan Stanley, Rashir Sharma is also the author of Democracy on the Road, a 25-year journey through India. So we got his perspective on the current election in the world's biggest democracy. Sharma explained why thinking about it through the American lens of the it's the economy stupid isn't relevant here. We began by asking him about a point that he made in his book and why there were fears when Prime Minister Modi came to power that his rule would resemble Erdogan in Turkey and Putin in Russia. That was the fear, as I expressed in the book about a couple of years ago. When okay. It appeared as if India was headed towards one party hegemony and one you know, sort of person being at the helm for a very long period of time. But here's the real sort of uh, point about this book, which I get into, which is that India is more like the European Union <laughs> rather than one homogeneous entity, which is more like 29 states rather than one country. And that, I think, is something which is very underappreciated by an international audience. Because you know, you know, for the international audience, it's about who's the prime minister. It's a referendum, as you said on him. But here's the story about India. As you well know, that in 2014, even when Modi got elected, his party, the BJP, only got 31% of the national vote. 69% went to other parties in India. And similarly, as when we go for this election, there are many states in India where the regional parties, the local parties of that particular state, is where the real fight is got there. It. So I think that, yes, you know, like, it's complex. We, we want to sort of get to the big picture, what re you know, really is going on. It's all about Modi. But the big picture for me, like in India, is the fact that there are all these regional leaders, that this is a very heterogeneous country. It's not one sort of, you know, homogeneous entity like even China, uh, as far as nationalities, ethnicities are concerned. And so that, for me, is something to watch out for in this election. There are so many states going to the polls where neither the BJP nor the National Party, the Congress Party, are even in contention. That you have a whole bunch of regional parties facing off each other, particularly in, in, in many parts of South India. So... That is something when the results come out on May 23rd, I think will surprise the world that how well the regional parties in India have done. Well, when we have this sort of diversity, when it begs consensus making in terms of policy making, what does it mean for the future of India's policy making when we have so many diverse voices being heard from so many different states? Yeah, so this is one reason why I sort of I've always said this to why India can never be the next China. Just because of the fact that its heterogeneity is such that you can't be like China, you know, where it's much more of a homogeneous state and you sort of can have one sort of, you know, uh, command from the center and mm. get things done. Here, you have to respect the heterogeneity. That's just the reality of India. Otherwise, you're tearing the social fabric of the country apart. That whenever any leader in India has tried to centralize too much power at the center, it's ended up sort of really like leading to even secessionist movements in India. So that's what you have to respect. So what this really means is this, that the growth miracles in India will happen on a, at a state-by-state -state basis. Okay. You will not get the sort of national reform which people are looking for, that, you know, some large-scale privatization, large-scale change in labor laws. That's just not going to happen in India because of exactly this reason that the diversity is such where for one person at the center to command and control is impossible in this country. So do economics even matter then in this election? Not really. I don't think so. I think that as far as economics is concerned, it's a very marginal sort of uh, factor. It's, it's much more about at each state, what are the caste, you know, the entire caste yeah. system in India? Like how are those alliances being uh, formed up? Mm -hmm. What is the concern about national security, which the BJP is trying to play up a lot in the, in, mm -hmm. uh, in the northern states? So there's one statistic in the book which I'll sort of mention to you, which is what I think will tell you about how sort of the connection between politics and economics in India is very tenuous. That if you look at Indian states, 
There are about 27 of them I counted, which, were, which recorded a growth rate of 8% a year over a five-year time horizon, the duration of any government. In these 27 states, half the time the government lost the election when they went back for re-election. So you can deliver 8% economic growth Doesn't matter. in some of these you know, sort of states and yet end up losing. So it may matter, but it's one of the many factors which matter. So this kind of American way of thinking about it, that you know, we start with how's the economy doing and what does that mean for Donald Trump's chances, let's mm-hmm. say, in 2020. In India, to think that way is just sort of not uh, relevant. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Next, we caught up with Daniel Kleiman. He's a senior fellow for the Asia-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, about the new report that he authored that grades China's Belt and Road Initiative. Kleiman started off by going through his seven risks that countries should check when considering an infrastructure project that's financed by Beijing. First, I think if I was that leader, I would want to immediately understand the Belt and Road is ultimately a geopolitical vehicle for China to pursue its ambitions. So knowing that, I would ask things like, is this deal that I might enter into, is it going to uphold my sovereignty or undermine it? Will it create a lot of debt or will it be financially sustainable? Will it be corruption resistant or will it corrode governance in my country? And also looking at things like, is it environmentally sustainable or not? Um, And of course, last but not least, transparency. Can we do a deal that's transparent or not? So I would have a lot of questions, a lot of concerns looking around the world. Uh, In our study, we looked at 10 projects that were all quite different and not one of them was problem free. Not one of them was problem free. I mean, we've all heard of several that have become that went really badly. The local government was saddled with some sort of debt. The infrastructure didn't work out. What are the best examples of ones where maybe there are problems, but it turned out to uh, work out really well or relatively well? What we found was that typically in countries that have strong rule of law that tend to be wealthier, uh, China had to play by the rules. Mm. And so in a sense that the, the countries constrained what China could do. So some of the better projects, for example, not without problems, but were the Haifa port, um, which still had some issues. So for example, ultimately a Chinese state-owned enterprise is going to manage that port expansion for 25 years. Uh, but you didn't see things like corruption, uh, given that Israel is a rule of law society. Uh, I would say the, the more kind of the country lacked its capacity, the more problems you saw. So essentially, the Chinese would kind of play by whatever the local rules were. And if there weren't a lot of rules, they would engage in practices that were problematic. It's interesting, of course, to stick with the news that we know that China is, of course, making inroads into Europe at the moment as we speak. They're just doing a handshake deal, getting some sort of document signed with the EU in Brussels at the moment to ensure that there's a show of unity and despite the United States or that they can build bridges, particularly when it comes to opening up the Chinese market to the EU. We've known that they were looking at Italy to potentially start Belt and Road investment. Where do you see particular infrastructure being a problem going forward? Are there particular areas that certain regions should be looking at most of all? Because we know how much China has made inroads into Africa in the past and Asia, but Europe seems to be in their sights. Sure. So quickly on the the EU-China declaration, 
I think it remains to be seen whether China will actually follow through on some of its pledges. And often you see language like agreed to intensify negotiations. So I, I think it's, it's dangerous to kind of overplay the positive outcome here. And we'll need to give this close scrutiny. In terms of where and what in Europe might be especially problematic, I mean, I would certainly point to on the digital side. Um, there's been a lot of attention to Huawei lately. But if you look at the kind of digital infrastructure that China um, could ramp up in Europe, whether it's Huawei or other companies, uh, there's certainly a danger of compromising European information uh, and certainly complicating how the U.S. and Europe partner together. So I would say those are areas of concern. Um, and then, I mean, you could look at certain ports that might be near European military facilities. I mean, we'll see where China wants to go. But overall, with Italy, actually, the a number of projects announced was pretty modest in comparison. So uh, to me, the, the kind of Italy announcement was much more political, and it, it may result in less actual projects, at least in the near term. Daniel, I know your report kind of focused on the other countries that are doing business with China and with sort of what they can look for. But I'm wondering, you know, what exactly can China do, I guess, to blunt some of the criticism? Because it's getting it from European leaders. It's obviously getting it from the U.S. But even some of the smaller countries that have done business with, like Myanmar uh, and some of the others, uh, the Maldives, they're, they're getting a lot of pushback now. And I think there is, has to be some concern on the Chinese side that people just don't trust them. It's a great question. I think the Chinese very much understand the blowback against Belt and Road and are trying to navigate it. You'll see at their upcoming Belt and Road Forum, I think, an attempt to rebrand the effort and to make it look higher quality and positive. Uh, the challenge for China is ultimately this is a vehicle for their global ambitions. And uh, many of these projects are massive. They're underway already. Uh, and, and so I, I think you'll see a kind of cosmetic approach to make it look a little better. But in practice, you'll see many of the same issues that we identified in the report continue on. Finally, we spoke with European Commission Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis about the economic health of the EU member countries and asked him how worried he was about the European slowdown. We expect the uh, EU's economy to continue to grow. So uh, currently our forecast is for EU's economic growth this year of 1.6%. Uh, and we uh, still expect economic growth in all 28 EU member states. It must be said that indeed there has been some uh, slowdown and uh, uh, we have revised our forecast uh, uh, downwards to uh, compare with previous uh, forecasts. Uh, but uh, in any case, we also see strong sides of the European uh, economy. Uh, employment is at the record high levels. Uh, unemployment is down to pre-crisis uh, uh, levels, so we see uh, strong uh, demand side of the economy uh, and we still see quite diversified growth in the economy. But at the same time, there are risks uh, concerning global uh, trade tensions, as you mentioned. There are risks uh, uh, concerning uh, Brexit, which is being discussed right now by, uh, by the leaders of the EU during the summit. Uh, so uh, certainly we need to stay uh, vigilant. In light of the ECB twisting itself in the knots with different tiers and LTROs and negative rates and collapsing demand from certain trading partners, would it make sense for the countries, particularly the ones with uh, stronger um, public finances, to engage more with fiscal stimulus to make up for this so that it's not entirely dependent on uh, the ECB to revive gro or reaccelerate growth? 
Well, uh, this is something uh, which we had been advocating from European uh, Commission side, uh, that we should be uh, uh, pursuing a differentiated uh, fiscal policy. And indeed, our policy advice to uh, countries uh, which uh, do have fiscal space, like Germany, like uh, Netherlands, uh, is to use this uh, fiscal uh, space to stimulate especially investment. Uh, and uh, at the same time, countries which still have uh, high uh, deficit uh, and public debt levels, uh, those countries should use current good economic times, and we are in a seventh year of economic growth. Uh, uh, they still should use these good economic times to reduce deficit, put uh, uh, debt clearly on downward paths, so that they have uh, some fiscal buffers and room for manure during the next economic downturn. So, but when we talk about, let's put to, to put this in the context of what's going on with Italy. I mean, we got the new mm-hmm. budget updates, their new economic forecasts. When you look at those and you take into account uh, what's been going on there, do you really see a strategy there, a viable strategy there mm-hmm. to deal with the economy and deal with the issues they're having? Uh, well, uh, as regards the uh, situation in, in Italy, indeed, of all EU member states, uh, Italy has experienced the most uh, pronounced slowdown. Mm-hmm. And uh, to uh, the extent it can be attributed to the uh, decisions of uh, uh, Italy's government to put 2000 19 uh, budget with uh, increasing deficit, contrary to pretty much all uh, policy advice. Uh, we had difficult uh, discussions with Italian authorities late last year. Eventually, they corrected their uh, budget deficit substantially uh, downwards, uh, but we already saw uh, uh, spreads had uh, increased, uh, confidence indicators were down, that was uh, negatively affecting also investment in Italy's economy, and in a sense, damage to the economy was already done, and indeed Italy's economy is now the one which has slowed down uh, most. And uh, especially in case of uh, Italy, uh, our policy advice is that Italy should continue to reduce budget deficit and public debt, as uh, Italy's debt-to-GDP ratio is uh, second highest in the EU and uh, currently is not really going down. They should, but what if they don't? Well, that's why uh, we have uh, uh, discussions uh, with uh, uh, Italian authorities in a context of European semester, which is our uh, fiscal and macroeconomic uh, coordination uh, cycle, and uh, potentially there are also enforcement mechanisms from the EU side. Mm. Of course, we hope uh, that we uh, can avoid uh, these uh, scenarios in any case. Uh, during the last, uh, late last year, we uh, managed to convince Italian authorities to correct their fiscal trajectory somewhat, uh, but of course we must uh, see uh, uh, what uh, will be the plans for the coming years. Let's turn to the banking system because every day, or maybe not every day, there's bad news out of uh, European banks, either from the sort of performance, but also money laundering and regulation and supervisory issues related to numerous banks uh, and the uh, dirty money that flows through them. What needs to be done from a regulatory perspective to stem that problem? Well, uh, first of all, if we look at the uh, prudential side, uh, actually European banking sector now is much uh, stronger than it used to be uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, It has much stronger uh, capital buffers, it has much uh, stronger liquidity, it's building up its uh, bailable uh, buffer, so-called MREL. Uh, so uh, one can say that the uh, European banking sector is now uh, much more resilient than it used to be uh, before the crisis and also 
in the immediate aftermath uh, of the crisis. At the same time, uh, there are uh, pockets of uh, weakness. We still see uh, high non-performing loans in uh, uh, several uh, banking systems in the uh, uh, EU, even though all in all uh, the level of non-performing loans has come substantially down. We are currently somewhere in the range of 3.3% uh, of non-performing loans. But then there are uh, countries, for example, like uh, uh, Greece or Cyprus, where the, where the level of non-performing loans is still very high. And as regards uh, anti-money laundering issues, uh, indeed, so uh, what we uh, have is, uh, uh, on one hand, we have European rules, so-called anti-money laundering directives, uh, which are actually quite strict. But at the same time, uh, enforcement of anti-money laundering uh, is uh, purely national. Mm. And as we uh, saw in quite a few EU member states, that uh, there are indeed issues. So what we did from European Commission side, we came uh, forward with a legislative proposal uh, to give more uh, uh, tools to European banking authority, mm. which then can uh, act in case of national uh, inaction of national competent authorities and what is uh, positive this uh, proposal has recently been adopted by co-legislators within the framework of review of European supervisory authorities. A big part of your job is sort of to bring a little bit more unity on the fiscal side uh, with regards to all of the various European nations. With the elections coming up uh, in Europe, are you at least worried or worried at all about some of the populist voices that could potentially gain a little bit more of a foothold uh, with regards to the European Parliament? Uh, well, uh, as regards uh, populism, uh, indeed, uh, we uh, see uh, some uh, tendencies uh, towards uh, populism and uh, we think that uh, one of the driving reasons is still aftermath of global financial and economical crisis and uh, social uh, consequences which are still being felt. So we think that the main uh, point uh, here is uh, to put uh, emphasis on uh, inclusive growth on, re on policies which reduce income inequalities. And uh, if you look in our economic and fiscal policy coordination European semester, which I mentioned, during the last couple of years, increasingly we had been putting emphasis uh, on uh, uh, social and employment issues mm. uh, to address uh, uh, these uh, uh, those social issues. Tough one to be able to measure, but what are you more worried about? Brexit for the EU or trade tensions with the US mm. for the EU? Well, you know, those are uh, still two different uh, issues. And when we uh, listen to uh, also Maria Draghi talking about risks which are tilted uh, uh, to downwards, there are external and internal risks. And trade tensions with U.S. is external uh, risk. Uh, well, we have uh, our negotiating group, which is currently uh, uh, negotiating with U.S. Uh, authorities, and we uh, hope we'll be able to avoid further escalation of trade uh, mm -hmm. tensions. Uh, uh, as regards uh, uh, Brexit, well, the summit uh, on Brexit is ongoing right uh, now, uh, but uh, I think chances are now uh, better that we'll be able to avoid so-called no-deal Brexit, which would be uh, quite uh, damaging uh, for the economy, especially though for the UK's economy. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television. 
and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.